Merry Christmas. We, uh, Greg, would you hand me my iPad right there? Because I have some notes in there that I need. Thank you. I don't normally have notes, but I do today. Thank you. Um, I'm going to, it's the fourth time through the message, and last week when the video announcement said Pastor Trent will be preaching the same message all four Sundays, or all four services, Greg leans over and he goes, maybe you'll get it right by the fourth time. Um, so well, that remains to be seen here. This is about it. But because there's four different, there's four different messages, four of the same messages, I always try to, anytime I'm preaching, I try to prepare four different approaches so that it's fresh to me, and that way I can communicate it well, not wondering, have I already said that? And I've already, so I'm going to ask you, or at least make a statement to you before we get started, and that is that in our modern and some would say postmodern world, sometimes we get a little caught up in ourselves. We get a little arrogant about our own view of the world. And I, this isn't an accusation. It happens to, to, to pastor types. It happens to, to, to philosophers. It happens to educators. It happens because we see the world the way we see the world. And there are some assumptions that all of us make. Uh, whether we acknowledge that there are assumptions that we make, there are just certain things we all believe to be true, whether we can articulate it or not. But somewhere in almost all of us, there's this idea that we've got things figured out a little bit better than those in the first century. We think of, we hear about epilepsy. My brother's an epileptic. And, you know, we go, well, you know, back when Jesus was walking around, they saw that, thought that was a demon possession. But we know better. Medication can take care of it. There are other things, the, the miraculous. Sometimes we go, yeah, he used to, but he doesn't anymore. And I, I just want to make this statement. I want to I challenge a worldview for a moment, and then we'll get to the gospel according to Matthew and the things about Jesus becoming a baby. I want you to know that no matter how enlightened we think we are, that there are two things at play. One statement from the scriptures, from the from from Proverbs, that there are, from the song, song, no, it's Proverbs, there is nothing, it's Ecclesiastes, doggone it, I had it. There is nothing new under the sun. As much as we think we have it figured out better than the people way back, those, those, those primitive people were wrong. The other thing is that don't you think if God is who he claims to be, that if we think we have the world figured out better than he revealed to us in scripture, that that's a little bit arrogant. Yeah, way to start a Christmas message, Trent. Tell people we're arrogant. There's nothing new under the sun. I want you to know that there are people now that think, you know, Jesus, he's, he's a, he was a good teacher. He was a good man. He's a philosopher. And he taught us how to live well. He taught us how to be loving and accepting to other people. And all those things are true. But God, really? Divine, miracle, really? Miracles? I just want you to know that within the first two centuries after Jesus walked this earth, that there was a group of people that believed wholeheartedly that Jesus was human, but didn't believe he was divine. They're called the Arians. And then others go, well, yeah, he might be God, but he could, come on, taking on flesh, a virgin birth. I mean, that's, that's going a little far. So we doubt his divinity. We doubt, or we doubt his humanity. We're not sure that he was really human. He just kind of appeared to be. Well, there was a group of people that believed that back thousands of years ago, the Gnostics. I'm not trying to tell you that you got it wrong. I am trying to tell you that if you think that Jesus was a good man, you're, you are wrong. 
And if you think that he was just God but wasn't human, you are wrong. According to the scriptures, and because I'm a pastor in a church, and the church has believed, does believe, and will continue to believe that, that God is who he claims to be, that Christmas tells us that God is both God and human. How? It's called the hypostatic union. If two natures, one person, beyond that, I can't tell you much. Because if I do, I'll lean either toward the humanity and forget the divinity or too far to the divinity and forget the humanity. And honestly, as a preacher, I don't want to be a heretic. But I do want you to think of some things. I want you to understand that hidden in every gospel passage, especially the Christmas narratives, there's a truth there that's kind of hidden. And it's not that you can't figure it out and scholar types like me can. It's just if we're not looking for it, we won't see it. This one truth is found hidden in every Christmas passage is this. That in every other religion, the founder points to eternal life. But in the gospel, Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, he is eternal life. You see the difference? One says, muster up and be good enough and understand and learn and be enlightened so that you can achieve eternal life. And Christianity tells us, Christmas specifically tells us, that God is eternal life. And it's not what you can do to please him or appease him. It's what he has done to rescue you. Now, we don't like the idea that we need a savior, but we do. Christianity is not for the strong. The strong, you got this. The weak believes God when he says, all of us have messed up. No one is good and no one seeks God. In fact, it's God that seeks us. It's not that we first loved him, it's that he first loved us. So we're going to read from the gospel according to Matthew. One other person I want to read from before we get to that so that we get our minds right. And that is from a guy named Tim Keller. In my opinion, Tim Keller is the C.S. Lewis. If you're a Christian, you know it used to be. 20 years ago, if you can make C.S. Lewis agree with you, you were good. He was just, he's a smart, enlightened man. I think the new C.S. Lewis of, our, of my generation, anyway, maybe not the millennials, but for my generation, is a guy named Tim Keller. Tim Keller founded Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan 30 years ago when churches were fleeing that pluralistic city. He planted there, and he has an unbelievable ability to understand culture and pluralism and to speak to it, the truth of the gospel of Christ, without being condescending and without being, um, you know, pointing fingers. It's just he reasons with people, and this is what he says. He tells us that Matthew, that's the gospel we're reading from today, <clears throat> does not begin the story of Jesus' birth by saying, once upon a time, because once upon a time is the way fairy tales, legends, myths, and Star Wars starts. Once upon a time signals that what, has, what you're about to see or hear or read or learn probably didn't happen. And if it did, well, we can't be sure it did. It might be a great story that we can learn a lot from, but it's not history. Matthew doesn't give this kind of account. He doesn't say once upon a time. In fact, he begins his gospel with, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about the ancestry of Jesus. And that means that he is grounding what Jesus Christ is and does in history. Jesus is not a metaphor. He's real. It all happened. Therefore, we can know by the title of the gospel, good news, that the gospel is not good news, or it is good news. It's not good advice. And that's important because Advice is counsel about what you must do. 
News is a report of what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen, but news urges you to recognize something that has already happened and then to respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says someone else has already acted. Let's say that there's an invading army. Now, I'm going to come off of the page here a little bit off of C.S. Lewis, I, or, uh, Tim Keller, because I, I want to make it a little bit more personal because this would never happen. But let's say that they're from that evil state, Indiana. I didn't say Ohio, Bert. Let's say there's an invading army coming to Zeeland, Michigan. And, and you hear about it, and they, they've made it to Benton Harbor, St. Joe, and they're on their way to South Haven. If that's the case, and we as a people of Zeeland and Holland, Michigan, want to gather together to protect ourselves from this invading evil army from Indiana, what do we need? We need military advisors, someone to tell us where to use our backhoes and loaders, how to put trenches up, and how to move the earth around, where to put our snipers, where the other armaments should go, and if we had them, where to put tanks, but instead it's all our four-by-fours. We're in Zealand, right? Someone to tell us how to protect ourselves, how to save ourselves from the impending doom. But let's say, instead, that would be advice that we need. But let's say, instead, that a, a great king from the east, Detroit, um, came all the way over here and interrupted or intercepted this invading Indiana army in South Haven and whoops them. Meanwhile, we're digging trenches and, and placing snipers and trying to find bunkers and air raid, air raid protection. But if the king has interrupted the army and whooped them, what do we need then? Advisors? We need messengers. We need someone to come and say, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all of you. Stop digging trenches. Stop trying to save yourself. I'm here to tell you that someone else, a great king, has saved you instead. Christianity, the gospel specifically, is not good advice. That's what the Arians thought. It's good news. It's what the Gnostics rejected. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, I'm going to pause only for this little section here because I want... It's, it's kind of hard to figure this out. He's, he's never been with her. I know there's children in the room. He's never been with her like a married couple is together. But he's going to divorce her. How's, how's it? Let me just... Western sensibilities do not equal ancient Semitic sensibilities. Their culture was, was different. Fathers would often arrange the marriage between a young man and a young woman before they were young men and women. And they would exchange property. They might, they might sign a contract. There was a ceremony when they were betrothed, when they were legally bound to one another. And the man, Joseph, was probably between 25 and 30 years old. At 30 years old, you were allowed to speak in the synagogue. You were considered all of a man and were able to provide for a family. So they usually got married mid, mid to late 20s. But the women weren't really women. They were babysitter age. As soon as they were able to bear children, parents, you all know what that means, then 
they were allowed to or were ready to be betrothed to a man probably 10, sometimes 15 or more years their senior. And so they had this ceremony, and it's actually, the ceremony was actually what we use uh, with communion. This is the blood of a new covenant, take it and drink. And if she took and drank it, she say, he's saying, will you marry me? And she says, yes, I will. But the families have already arranged it. In fact, it's where in old-timey weddings, when you used to hear the pastor stand up and say, if anyone here has just cause why this woman should not be wed in the bond of holy matrimony to this man, speak now or forever hold your peace. That was speaking to contractual obligations. If a father or a family had made a promise of this particular woman or this particular man was going to be wed to another, then you either speak up right now and claim that contract or the contract is canceled and you hold your peace. That's what was going on. They were betrothed, but they had never had the marriage ceremony. God had not yet put his final blessing on it. They had not consummated the marriage. So Joseph, not wanting to embarrass her or disgrace her in this very small village, decided that he would Divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through his prophet the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus, which means, by the way, God saves. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, another historical marker here, magi, magicians, astrologers, stargazers, um, enchanters, encanters. Remember when we talked about in Daniel, when Daniel was the chief of the magi, he was the chief magician, probably came from the Babylonian era, area, uh, somewhere, Iran, Iraq today, the Middle East. Magi from the East came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw this star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And, and when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem and Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another, by another route. Now here's the part of the Christmas story we often leave out. But because he is the king of kings, it's important that we see that he became a refugee. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, 
Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and he took the child as his mother and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old or under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. This is sounding familiar to many of you. We heard Pastor Greg gave a wonderful message on this passage. A voice is heard in Ramah. Weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. Peace on earth. We love that stuff in Christmas. But we forget that when the one who brings peace to the world showed up, there was terror. There was murder. We are so familiar with Christmas that we miss the details. Twelve years ago, in a Christmas Eve service, my former charge, I was walking from this side of the stage to this side of the stage, and when I got to right about here, all my hearing went away. By the time I got over here to make the turn to come back, because I pace a lot, I lost all my hearing. I had five minutes left in the message. I had nothing I couldn't hear. All I could hear inside was, I muscled through the rest of the message. I went home. By the time I woke up on, on, on Christmas morning, my eyes were swollen shut, and I could not hear one sound. For four to six days, family went to Grand Rapids to, to have Christmas with my mom. I laid there, called the doctor. He gave me some eye drops. And I was one of the few out of 300 and some odd people that had sudden onset hearing loss that year. I was one of the few that got any of it back. But I can tell you that over the next six or eight weeks, I got 60 and 70% of my hearing back. But you know what I haven't heard since then? Watching television, I've not heard a medical alarm when it flatlines. You know that, ooh, can't hear it. When a, a school bell goes off, can't hear it. When there's some kind of telephone that rings, can't hear it. So I went from hearing very well to missing some of the nuances of what it means to hear. Think of Christmas like that. We're used to it. We're so familiar with it that we forget the audacity of it. So I want to I I challenge you this morning to wonder. I'm going to read from my favorite composer to get our minds right. And then I want to just ask you to consider some things that maybe you don't think about. The one who knew Mary before she was born squinted to make out her face. The maker of heaven, the author of morn, wrapped in a young girl's embrace. He who has never slumbered before wakes for a moment or two. God of forever suddenly born. Who could believe this could be true? The one who commanded the world to exist, speechless and helpless and shy. The builder of mountains, these little fingers and fists, they carefully carved out the sky. He whose whisper rumbles the earth, cries with a voice barely heard. Rock of all ages, this is your birth. And heaven sings, glory, word became flesh. And that in itself is amazing. 
A holy God became man. But consider this sweet mystery. God became a baby. Think about it for a moment. If you've had a baby, if you've held a baby, if you've seen a baby, what do they do? They eat and cry and sleep and poo. Winnie the. And Jesus, God in flesh, ate and slept and cried and pooed. The God of the universe. I know how weird this is. The God of the universe pooed. I'm not saying it to be funny. It is kind of funny because we go, what? The one we are all dependent on was dependent on a little girl. The giver of life was born. The fearless one was startled at a loud noise. You've all seen this when you walk up to a child and you go, hey, and they freeze. It's a reflex. The one who never hungered needed mother's milk to live. The bread of life couldn't feed himself. The ruler of all with his parents fled for his life when a king who considered himself a god tried to kill the god of the universe. The one who spoke the world into being could not form words. The all-powerful god was wrapped in a papoose and unable to move. In other words, the all-powerful one showed his power through his powerlessness. The omnipresent one, the one who is everywhere and all time. So we always think God is everywhere, but God is not every, only every, everywhere. He's also all time. So he sees the beginning of creation, he sees you sitting here, and he sees the end of time, all as if it's present. And he sees Zeeland, Michigan, and Jerusalem, and Queenstown, he sees them all right now, at the same time. He does not have to wonder. He knows who you were going to be, he knows who you are, he knows it all, he sees everything. The one who sees all couldn't see beyond the length of his arm. 12 to 18 inches. Developmental psychology will tell you that a child, here's a, here's a way of putting it. I'm 50. So if I hold this up here, I have to do this. Right? Some of you. Or get the readers out. Children are exactly the opposite. Everything out there is fuzzy. But when you get close and you've seen it, that's when a child will smile at you. That's when they'll respond. An infant, I mean, six to 12 weeks old, when you get close, it's all fuzzy. And then you get into that if it, length of the arm. So if it's, if it's a Dutch kid, it's about 18 inches because they're, they're big. Um, it, the rest, 12. But when you get in close, you know the God who sees everything could not see beyond the length of his arm. The one who was worshiped by angels was now worshiped by shepherds and pagans. The infinite one, is now finite, the extraordinary, ordinary, the king of all kings is a refugee, the one who could not be seen without causing death to the gazer. Remember Moses? Lord, let me see you. If you see me, you'll die. They used to tie a rope around the, 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 the priest that was going to the Holy of Holies to offer up offerings because if God showed up or if he wasn't completely pure and clean, he would die and they couldn't get, they had to drag him out. God's glory, his majesty, his his. His holiness is such that it is academic sense of the world, not the way we use it. He is, it is terrible. It is awful, full of awe, and it is so weighty, it is so big that it will kill you if you come in contact with it. So the one who could not be seen without causing death to the gazer could now be touched, held, and tickled. You see how far God is willing to come? 
His mom babysitter aged Mary, 12, 13, no older than 15 years old, was tickling the toe of God. The one who was spirit had skin. The one who breathed life into Adam took his first breath. The one who knows all knew nothing but a womb, a girl, a cave, and a chill. The one who always was began. The everlasting one became mortal. The perfect one was the child of a sinner. The one who sustains all things was now being sustained and was dependent on a little girl's smile. Okay, so what? How far would you go to save someone you loved? Because it tells us that God favors you. We're told that I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Are you all? It's for everybody. Are you part of everybody or are you the one exception? He loved you so much that he was willing to limit himself so that you would have a God that you can touch, so that you would have a Savior that you know identifies with you. He was born because you were born. He got sick to his stomach because you get sick to your stomach. He was betrayed and pummeled because someone has betrayed you, and whether metaphorically or physically, you've been pummeled in your life. He suffered because you suffer, and he wants you to know these things about him. Jesus says throughout his ministry, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am willing. Be clean. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am with you always. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am God's son, and I'm coming back for you. I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And then he claims to be God when he says, I am. Ego a me. When, when Moses said, God, in the burning bush, who should I tell him sent me when he's supposed to go uh, rescue those, the people of God from, is, from Egypt? God says, tell him, I am that I am sent you. All time, all present, all th- I am that I am, Yahweh. And Jesus says, ego e me, several times in the gospel according to John. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And this is what he says to you. He names himself, I am And then he says this, you are my friends. You get that? That the God of the universe thinks so highly of you that he calls you friend. He is fully divine and capable of rescuing you, whether you think you need it or not. And he is fully human and is capable of relating to you whether you want to be related to or not. That's how far God is willing to go. And that's the details of Christmas we often forget. That God became everything that humanity is. And if he didn't, we're doomed. That which was not assumed by Christ is not redeemed. He became fully human for you. 
God became a baby for you. Will you be someone who takes that good news and responds to it the way the one who did it for you asks? He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel is what happened. It's good news. And you just need to respond to it. I pray you will, or I pray you have. Either way, let's pray. Omnipresent one, the one we worship you because you are in all time and everywhere. But we also worship you because you became a child with a body and fuzz on your head at a particular time in a particular place. You're all-powerful, God, and we worship you because of that, but we also worship you because you were in a papoose, in a feed trough. You limited yourself to show your unlimited love for us. All-knowing one, you know every thought we've ever had. And you know us each personally. But we worship you too because for a while you knew nothing more than a mother's smile. Give us the courage, Lord, to respond to your good news. Make us more like you because you became more like us. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Just so you know, when you read the Gospels, you, that's the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see Jesus time and time and time again referring back to Christmas. He doesn't use that word, but referring back to that first moment when he cried and he took his first breath. Over and over, his disciples said things like this, Jesus, when are you going to take power and save the world? And Jesus kept saying, you don't get it. I'm going to lose all the power that I have and die to save the world. Instead of being powerful, he shows his power through his powerlessness. Now, in the words of Tim Keller, speaking on behalf of Jesus, okay, that's three people away. If If you're wondering, let me tell you what Jesus tells you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you were on the paid staff of hell. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what deep, dark secrets are in your past. I don't care how badly you've messed up. If you repent and come to me, says Jesus, not only will I accept you and work in your life, but I will delight to work through you and in you because I've been doing it since the dawn of human history. It's who I am. The Lord bless you and keep you, and make his face shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord turned his countenance for you. That's a look on God's face. God, smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ and have a merry, merry Christmas.